And so in today's passage, Jesus shows us that he identifies with two Gentiles who in the eyes of Israel, in the eyes of the Jews, were considered unclean, dirty, filthy outsiders. And keep in mind where Mark is writing from. Mark is writing the gospel of from Rome. This means that he is in the heart of Gentile territory, and he wants his readers to understand that Jesus Christ is not just the Messiah for Israel, but the Messiah for the nations. And so last week we saw in the opening passages of Mark chapter 7 that there was this racial and cultural prejudice that Israel held against the Gentiles. And in last week's passage, the religious leaders, they were accusing Jesus' disciples of eating without washing their hands. Because if you were a good, law-abiding, Moses, Mosaic law-loving Israelite, you would have washed your hands before you ate. And so the Pharisees and scribes, they took this external tradition, which was a rabbinical interpretation of the Old Testament law, and they elevated it over the hearts. And they elevated it over the heart of the law. And so Jesus attacked not just their interpretation of the law, but he attacked their entire approach to the Old Testament law as we know it. They looked for loopholes. They twisted the proper interpretation of the law of Moses to their advantage. And the Jewish tradition was so was so inwardly driven, it was set up like a box to say, if you could follow, not the Old Testament law, but if you follow our traditions, if you follow our interpretations, then you're in with God, because you're in with us, and you're in with Israel. But if you don't follow our interpretations, or if you can't follow them because you're not racially part of who we are, then you're an outsider. You're on the outside. And even if you're a Gentile who believes in the in the God of the Old Testament, you're still somewhat an outsider, right? And so one scholar explains it this way, that if you're talking about cleaning your hands, washing your hands and eating, if you're talking about eating with Jews and eating with Israelites, that even if the shadow of a Gentile passed over your plate, your plate would become unclean. And you can't eat that food anymore. And that's where we kind of pick up today. In today's passage, we're not going to explain every single verse. With our time, we're going to focus on the most significant portions. So those are the portions I've put up on the slide for you. But point number one this morning is Jesus identifies with outsiders. That's a, that's the big idea, the main point of this first section, right? Jesus identifies with outsiders. We see this in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. Let me begin reading to you from Mark chapter 7, verse 24. And from there, Jesus arose. He arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. These are Gentile towns. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, which means she was demon-possessed, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a a serial Phoenician by birth, and she begged him That's a progressive in the Greek. She kept begging him. She urgently continued and continued and continued to beg him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So Jesus enters Gentile regions. He's no longer in Galilee. And this reflects the heart of Old Testament 
messianic prophecy that the Messiah would bring the blessing to all the families of the earth. He would begin with Israel. And so his course of ministry, his timeline reflected messianic prophecy. First, he would go to Israel. He would often go to Jerusalem. He would go to Galilee. He went to the Israelites first. And then now he's going to the Gentiles. And in verse 26, we meet this Syro-Phoenician woman, which means she was from Phoenicia, where they invented phones. No, I'm just kidding. Don't write that down. Okay? She was from Phoenicia, and which had been annexed to Syria. So she was Syrian and Phoenician. Under the Roman general Pompey, this Phoenicia was now under Syria. But that's not what's important. What's important is that he's in Gentile territory. Now, actually... Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. You can write that down. Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, says in Matthew's account that she was a Canaanite. Why is that significant? Because we went through the book of Judges. In the Old Testament, the Canaanites were ancient enemies of Israel. The Israelites and Canaanites, they hated each other. So why this is theologically significant is that she has a greater understanding of the Jewish Messiah than the Jewish religious leaders. And that's fascinating because a person with the roots of being an adversary, an adversarial roots, the enemies of Israel have a bigger view of God, have a better view of the Old Old Testament God and the Old Testament than the Jewish leaders. So this woman whose daughter is demon-possessed. Now, we need to stop and unpack this a little bit. What does that mean? I mean, I think it's so easy to read this. Oh, she had an unclean spirit. What does that mean? How many parents are in here? Raise your hand. How many children in here who have parents in here? Raise your hand. It's officially everyone. Okay? So if you're a parent or if you've had parents, you understand that there's normal people in the emergency room, and then there's parents. Okay? A parent will not wait their turn. They'll wait their turn because there's a security guard. But if your child is sick, you want that treated. Have you seen parents at Disneyland? It is crazy. That's not what it's talking about, demon-possessed. But almost, right? Almost. But parents will do everything we will to fight for our children. But imagine... If your child is not physically sick, they're demon-possessed. What does that mean? This means that this child, this daughter, is uncontrollable. What, what is the manifestation of being demon-possessed? She's. What's the difference with being hyper versus being demon-possessed? Or being naughty versus being demon-possessed? She's probably committing or acting in ways that are grossly immoral, evil in her words and her actions. And if this is your child, what would you do? How would you feel? I'm pretty sure, being a Gentile, she's probably exhausted her options. Has she tried the local witch doctor? Probably. Has she gone to the Greek temples and Greek gods? Probably. But at some point, She hears about Jesus and how he casted out demons for the children of Israel. She probably heard stories of what she did, what Jesus did along the Gerasenes and casted out the demons of the demoniac. And so 
In the original language, like I mentioned, she present progressively begged Jesus, relentlessly fell down at Jesus' feet, begging like a parent who has exhausted all of your options because your child is grossly immoral and evil in character and uncontrollable and fearful. And so her persistence served as an illustration for Jesus' disciples. They witnessed her genuine trust and belief play out because it's not just her begging. It is what she says. It's how she responds to Jesus' testing that shows her unbreakable faith and trust in the person of Christ, not just in what Christ can do. Look at verse 27. And he said to her, so she's begging Jesus to help her child. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Verse 28, but she answered him. She didn't, she wasn't offended. She didn't say, Jesus, you, what'd you call me? Did you call me a dog? That's pretty dogmatic, Jesus. But, but instead, she said, yes, Lord. Yet he, This is a Gentile. Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Verse 29, and he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. So Jesus heals from remote. He heals from afar. He heals by command and by decree. And she went home and found her child laying in bed. Why was she laying in bed? Because it's exhausting to be demon-possessed. It's exhausting to have your physical body and your soul controlled by an evil spirit that she's completely wiped out, completely lost everything, and now she's recovered to her senses, but she's laying in bed, healed, and the demon gone. But let's unpack the heart of the conversation. Now this word dogs in verse 28, means puppies. Where do we get that? Jesus uses a very unusual word for dog here. He uses the diminutive form and conveys puppies. Now, why don't our English translations translate that for us? That I don't know, right? But this is the Greek word often used for puppies. And so you get the picture. There's children eating around the table. That's the illustration. And as they eat bread, the crumbs are falling. And the house pets, the puppies, not the wild dogs, not the ravenous dogs, not the diseased dogs, but your, your puppies would come and they would eat the crumbs off the table. And Jesus is saying, in a sense, this is how families eat. There is a priority. There is a pecking order. The children's, the children eat first. The children's food gets fed to them first. And then the puppies get the leftovers because it's not right to feed the pets first. And then what if the pets eat all the food and the children starve? That's inhumane. That's wrong. The puppies will get theirs, but they have to wait. And the illustration here is that Jesus is first Messiah to the Jews. So he goes to the Jews first, there is an order, and then he goes to the Gentiles, but there's much more, there's more than enough for the Gentiles. And the Gentile woman understood the purpose of Israel's Messiah. She has a better grasp of the order of salvation and the order of the Old Testament and the order of progressive revelation than the Jewish religious leaders or the Jews had of Jesus during that time. And even Jesus' disciples, they don't understand him. 
They don't get him, right? They're constantly trying to figure out what Jesus is doing and what he's teaching. But notice the object of her faith is Jesus. She doesn't get deterred. She doesn't walk away. You know, a parable like this is meant to push people away. You would think Jesus gives her some cryptic answer and almost seems insulting. And you would think she's like, okay, well, I don't get this. I'm leaving. But she placed her faith in the person of Christ. She placed her her faith in the surplus and the abundance, theologians and Bible students write this down. She placed her faith in the abundance of the new covenant. She understood Jeremiah 31, 31. She understood the new covenant. She had no idea that what she's saying, in a sense, she, she didn't know that the new covenant was being unfolded. It wasn't explained fully yet. The epistles of the New Testament weren't written, but she grasped the heart of it. She is saying, in a sense, I know you came for Israel, and I know that you're the Messiah first to the Jews, and I know, but you are sufficient enough to save me. She's saying, Jesus, you're big enough. You're compassionate enough. You're loving enough to save a Gentile puppy like me. And so she's saying, I understand the new covenant before it's fully even unfolded and explained. I know that you are Jewish. And I know that you are sent to fulfill the promises to Abraham and to Israel. And I know that I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm not a Jew. And I know that I'm not an Israelite. And I know the Jews see me as a dirty Gentile. And I know I'm an outsider. And I'm not asking for the bread. I'm not asking for the, for the main meal. I believe that your crumbs are big enough to save me. I believe that your leftovers are so sufficient that there's enough bread and enough fish for me. I believe that even after you feed the children of Israel, that your leftovers can convert me. And that's ironic because she answers Jesus from within the parable. But even Jesus' disciples didn't understand his parables without special commentary from Jesus. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 33. Mark chapter 4, verse 33. Again, if you have a paper Bible, you can do this easily. Mark chapter 4, verse 33. It says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, meaning as he taught in parables, people didn't understand it. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So as Jesus was teaching in parables, people didn't understand it. And even his own disciples needed a special explanation. But this lady, this Gentile lady, she answers Jesus from within the parable. She places herself within the parable, showing that she understands him. Because the father was already drawing her. That's amazing that she is responding. So, so this is what I mean from within the parable. Jesus said, Jesus said, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's not an answer to her question. Her question is, is Jesus, heal my daughter. 
She has an unclean spirit, please. And he's like, it's not, let the children be fed first. You know, you would think like, what? But look at her responses immediately. She places herself within the parable. Yes, Lord, I understand completely what you're saying. Yet even the dogs under the table can eat the children's crumbs. And so she understands. Jesus tested her. She understood him. And she answers, passing the test. Now, one pastor explains that she's not saying, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. You see that? She's not saying, Jesus, give me what I deserve. I'm a child too. Are you calling me a dog? I am a child. I deserve what I deserve. And notice, that's how the Jewish people thought during Jesus' times. That's how the religious leaders thought. They assumed that they were the children of God because they were heirs of Abraham. They assume that they already had their rightful place at the table. And they treated everybody else like outsiders. No, you cannot join our group. You're not Jewish. You don't follow our laws. No, you cannot sit at our table. No, you, we will not invite you to lunch. You're new. We don't know you. No, all of, no, we're closed. You cannot join us. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Okay? But she's saying, I know I'm new. I know I don't know you guys. I know I don't deserve to be invited in. I know I'm not your friend. I know you don't know me. I know that you haven't prepared for me. I know I don't deserve the bread. I'm not asking for the bread. Give me the crumbs. Because the crumbs can save me. She's saying, I don't deserve what you have to offer, Jesus. It's on the basis of your goodness, not mine. I need your mercy now. She recognizes that she needs the Lord's mercy. How many people, even Christians, live each day as if we don't need the mercy of God? How many of us live daily refusing to recognize that we need God's mercy or assuming that we already have it? But she understands the root of the gospel that there's nothing she could do to help herself or her daughter, but the salvation would come to both Israel and the nations completely by sovereign grace and the goodness of God alone. She understands she's outside of the covenant community and cannot earn her way in. This is the opposite of the religious leaders. She has no merit and nothing to offer. And she's saying, Jesus, the only way that I can get your healing is, is because of the overabundance of your leftovers and grace. The crumbs of mercy and love, his crumbs are sufficient to save our souls, beloved, from hell. She understood the feeding of the 5,000. Go to chapter 6, verse 52. Chapter 6, verse 52. Remember at the end of the feeding of the, of the 5,000 plus the feeding of the multitude, many, including Jesus' disciples, didn't understand the significance of his miracle. They didn't understand the teaching, and many of them, John tells us they, that they went away. Look at chapter 6, verse 52, what Mark tells us. This is Jesus' disciples. For they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand that Jesus is the bread of life. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. Jesus was saying, I am the bread of life. Not only will I feed you physically, and there'll be so much left over, but I am the bread that, that people truly seek. I am the bread of eternal life, and I have an overabundance 
to give. And the disciples didn't understand the significance. And this woman says, I know you're the bread of life. And I know that I don't deserve you. But I believe that since you are the bread of life, give me the crumbs. Because the crumbs of the Messiah can bring eternal life. And that's why Jesus says, for this statement, you will be saved. He doesn't say that verbatim, but but she is saved. Notice Cross-reference, Matthew chapter 15, verse 28. Jesus said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Of course Jesus saves her, and she gets a seat at the spiritual table of God. Amazing faith. Why? Because God the Father was already drawing her, working in her. That's point number one. Jesus identifies with outsiders. Point number two. Jesus identifies with human weakness. Jesus identifies with human weakness. We see this in verses 31 to 37. Notice verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. right, And the region of of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. So this is again, he enters through the Sea of Galilee, but back into Gentile territory. And that's a key word there, speech impediment, right? And they begged him to lay his hands on him. Verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Apaphatha, that is, be open. That's Aramaic, okay? And his ears were open, and his tongue was released. What do you mean your tongue released? His tongue freed so he could speak plainly. Verse 36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and he speak. Any speech pathologists in here? Raise your hand. Speech pathologists, any of you in here? God bless your soul, if, if there are any. You know, speech pathologists, you know why it's so rewarding? You know you're not just helping someone fix their speech. What are you doing for them? You're healing hurts. You're healing their identity. You're helping them communicate. You have to understand why Jesus goes through this ritual. Okay. Notice that Jesus does a routine with this man okay, um, who is deaf and almost mute. If you had a speech impediment, you're pretty much... What this is communicating is that people treated you basically like you're mute. Oh, I, I, I can't. Stop talking. We can't understand you anyway. It's, it's as if we don't hear you. Very clear. It says speech impediment. Okay? And notice that Jesus does all this weird stuff. So let, 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 me, let me unpack this for you. Have your Bibles. Again, a paper Bible. You can really zoom in and, and, and take a look. Okay, and then if, if you have a cross-reference, you can flip it. I do advise you to, if you can't read it, get a large print, okay? Uh, and that's what I did. I got a large print because I couldn't read it on the pulpit anymore, my little ESV. Okay, so notice what he does. First, verse 33, Jesus takes him aside from the crowd. Why? All his life, he's a spectacle. He can't talk. I, uh, 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 you're stumbling. What happens? People make fun of you. He can't hear. 
He's almost mute and he's deaf. So as people are laughing, this is all you see. All your life. Now the text doesn't tell us, so we're not sure if these are his actual friends that bring him to Jesus or if people are just bringing him like a spectacle. Hey, the healer's in town. Are you sick? No, I'm not. Hey, go grab the deaf guy. (laughs) Let's see what Jesus could do with him. Here, Jesus, heal him. All his life. He can't hear when people laugh at him. He can't hear. He just sees that he's an outsider. So it makes no sense if you can't hear for Jesus to pronounce, be healed. It would be like this. What does Jesus do? Takes him aside. Touch. Sign language. And, and, and that's why it's so, that's why it's so crazy. Right? He, notice what he does. He put his fingers into his, his ears. Cause he knows that, that this guy can't hear. And after spitting, touched his tongue. So Jesus put his fingers in the person's ear and Use some saliva. I know it's gross, but I don't know why he did it, but it's a touch. So Jesus actually touches him. Okay? And he pulls him aside because he says, you've been a spectacle all your life. I'm not going to make a show out of you. I'm going to tenderly take you aside, and I'm going to communicate to you in a way where I identify with you in your weakness and where you can understand it and appreciate it and receive it. How many of you guys guys missed over this in your Bible reading? You see, sometimes you just got to take your time and pause. And imagine if you're this guy, and why Jesus would have to do this in order to communicate with you. Right? And so Jesus touched his tongue, and... Looking up to heaven, Jesus deeply sighed. Notice that in verse 34. Jesus sighed. That's such a minute detail. Like, why would Mark include that? You know, it's almost like Jesus healed him. (sighs) Why would Mark say that? Who cares? It's because in the Greek, this word sigh communicates a painful groan, like a moan of pain. Jesus identifies with this man's pain and his life of shame. This man was alienated, lived in isolation, was mocked. And Mark is giving us all the signs that Jesus is going to be the suffering servant. Don't forget, because you know how we took a break from Mark to go through the family series of Missions Month, that Mark is heavily aligned with Isaiah and the theme of the suffering servants. And so Mark gives us all the signs that point towards the cross, that Jesus would go to the cross to bear public shame, become a spectacle. He'd be rejected by Jews and Gentiles. Nobody would listen to him. He would be betrayed by his own people, crucified. But the biggest clue is the word speech impediment. That word, he could barely talk. Because this is written in the Greek. This is one 
entire phrase. So if you had a Greek Bible, it wouldn't be like all those words. It would be one phrase. And that one phrase communicates that he had a speech impediment. And there's only one other place besides Mark chapter 7 in the Bible where this Greek word is used. And it's found in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, also known as the LXX. And that's Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. That's the only other place. And the reason why Mark chooses to use this word from the Greek version of the Old Testament is to make the connection that Jesus identifies with this guy because Jesus is going to the cross. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah. So this woman, this Gentile woman, Syrophoenician woman could understand it. This man would experience it briefly here. And Mark wants all of us to understand this. And if you go to Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6, it says this. It talks about the Messiah. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That phrase, tongue of the mute, it's the same Greek word. And these are the only places in the Bible, Mark chapter 7, a a few times, and then here, in the Septuagint, Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6, the only two times it's used in the Bible, tongue of the mute. And so not only does Jesus open up our mouths so that we can speak, but he allows those who stutter and those who have a speech impediment and those who could not talk to sing for joy. Not only are you talking, you are singing. And this echoes the, the, the fruit of the Messiah. And notice what they're saying, right? As the people, and they didn't understand everything fully, but these Gentiles who don't have a Jewish background are saying back in Mark chapter 7, at the end of our passage, that wow, he even makes the deaf and the mute speak. They're saying he reflects Isaiah. Even though they don't know Isaiah, they're like, look, he's the Messiah, and he has done all things well. That reflects Genesis 1.31, that only the Creator can do this type of miracle, that Jesus is the Creator, and they're praising him. That is the response. Worship is the response to the person and the work of Christ. But you understand that Jesus would go to the cross silent. Silently he went to the cross like a sheep led to slaughter. He did not speak a word. He did not fight back verbally. He went. He bore all our shame. He bore all of human struggle. He bore all the curses of the fall of man. He understood not only our sins, but he understood and bore the consequences of sin, which includes every single disease. He felt and understood the consequences of what he's dying for so that he can reverse the curse. Physical disease, physical limitation. Jesus came to bear our sin. He came to deal with it. And this is why if you don't have empathy for people physically and emotionally, you don't understand the gospel. If you don't have a heart for outsiders who come in and say, look, I don't get it. I'm new. I don't understand. Will you spend time with me? Will you invite me in? 
Will you invite me into the community? You don't understand the heart of Jesus. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying you're really spiritually immature. Because that's the thing with the Jews. They had all the theology, but they missed the point completely. That's the problem with Jesus' disciples. They had access to him. They were already in, but they didn't understand. But this Gentile woman understands, and this Gentile man tastes the heart of God. And so at the cross, the Jews would make Jesus into an outsider. He is, you understand that he's talking about himself in the parable? He is the literal child of God. Yes, he goes to Israel first, but they would treat him not like a puppy, but like a dog. He is the literal child of God. He is the son of God. Yet he would be rejected and treated like a dog. Jesus was treated worse than a puppy begging for crumbs at the table. And they crucified him. You won't even want to crucify your dog. And they crucified him. One pastor put it this way. Quote, the son of God, the child of God became a dog so that we would we could become sons and daughters at the table. In other words, Jesus Christ became a dirty outsider so that we who were outside could have a seat at God's table as sons and daughters of God. In a sense, he became mute, going to the cross silent. But how many people come in here each week and it's as if they're silent because we don't recognize them. We go to our own friends. We go to our own groups. We go to our own people. That's human nature. I go to my meetings. I'm guilty too. That's why the number one priority for Pastor Terrence and I is a simulation. The number one priority for the English congregation, other than preaching, teaching God's word, rather than going to meetings to continue organizing, you know, the structure and our programs for everyone who's already inside. Look, if you've been with us, if you're plugged in, or if you're a friend with someone, it's easy. You're in. You know how to get in. You know how to serve. You know where to go to. You know how to talk to. You know my phone number, you know how to reach us. But if you're new, or if you're not yet a believer, and, and you don't have any friends here, you don't know where to go. You don't know who to talk to. And our church has exploded over the years, and we never built those systems besides a walk And so the number one priority, because Pastor Terrence and I understand the heart of Jesus, and we hope that you would too, is we have to build a pathway for the, the new believer, the non-believer, and the newcomer to say, hey, I really need to get into Jesus' community. Help me. Where can I go? Who can I talk to? That's why it's a number one priority. Because those inside are going to take care of themselves. That's human nature. You will take care of your own people. But who is going to go outside of Israel? And who is going to go outside to the Gentiles? And who is going to go outside and for those who are unheard. And those who are who Jesus are bringing in. And that's why the number one priority for us is a simulation. The number one priority for me outside of preaching and shepherding is the community group ministry. Number one priority. Because we're convicted at how inward we have become and how we don't look like the heart of Jesus. The big idea of this morning's message is on the cross, Jesus will be treated like an outsider so that we who believe 
could become insiders and children of God. And if you understand this, you will understand the heart of the gospel. Another application that's more personal for each of us is that there is no human weakness and no suffering that Christ does not identify with. He identifies with us at the core of the human essence. Though he is the eternal son of God, when Christ chose to take on human flesh, he was a 100% man and understands every physical and emotional pain. The way that Jesus makes us whole is spiritually. But notice that the way he makes us whole is he invites us in to have community with the Trinity and to him. He invites us in. He, he speaks to us in a language that we needed. Just like this man who was, had a speech impediment and who was deaf needed Jesus to touch him, not command him to be healed. Beloved, Jesus identifies with you. So if you don't have Jesus this morning, turn to him. If you don't have Christ this morning, know that he came to identify with you. He went to the cross to pay for your sins, to take your place on this cross, on the cross. But you must cry out to him and you must confess that you're a sinner in need of his grace and mercy. Like the woman, cry out for his mercy. It's no one deserves to be brought into the family of God. None of us. None of us. Not even the insiders who think they're saved, they might not be. But you need Jesus. Cry out for his mercy. And he will save you and surrender to him as Lord. Repent, meaning ask him to change you. And so if you came here this morning seeking for Jesus, there are plenty of people around here who want to embrace you. Ask them. If you're, after we pray and after we close, turn to your neighbor and say, hey, tell me more about Jesus. Or I'm new and I don't know where to go. Can you tell me? And if they can't tell you, they can turn you to someone else and say, oh, I don't know, I'm new too. Let's go talk to the usher or let's go talk to that person over there. But don't leave here without asking the Lord for his mercy and surrender to him as Lord. He will change your life. Will you bow your heads with me? I'm going to say a prayer and you guys pray with me and then I'm going to close us properly. Okay? If you're here this morning, for the first time, and you want Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Father, I come here today because you brought me, and I know that I don't deserve your mercy and grace, but I believe that even your crumbs can save me because you're big enough. Your person, your son is sufficient enough. His work on the cross is sufficient enough. Father, I, I confess that I'm a sinner. Pray that. Father, forgive me for my sins. And Lord, help me to repent and help me to surrender to you as the resurrected Lord. And if you prayed that prayer, don't leave here today without turning the person next to you and say, teach me what I got to do next. Because we want to be a, a church that's aligned with disciple making. Beloved, will you all join me in prayer? Father, we come before you. We re repent of our sin. We, re we repent of our inwardness. We re repent of times where we fail to recognize your mission and we miss the heartbeat. And we are living so far from the cross. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would bring us back and place us on our knees before the foot of the cross. Show us, Lord, what it was like. Remind us 
of who we were beneath the cross, crying out for your mercy and needing your salvation and restore the joy of our salvation. And will your love propel us forward as disciple makers? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.